If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Happy 2020. Welcome back. Welcome back. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. I'm well. It's a new decade. I know. A new filling. What does your mom do? She makes you fill up all the space on the checks. Right. So now I have to, now I have to do that thing with the, the 2020 there because there was something posted on Facebook that you have to fill in all the numbers or somebody will come in and write the last two digits incorrectly and oh my God. destroy your life. So then it's really not the future. It's not the future. Hey, you know what? <laughs> this was the year that the Jetsons was set, was 2020. Really? We were supposed to be flying around, have yeah. robot maids. Right. I need that freaking robot maid Rosie to come clean my shit up. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. What a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, you know, now that 2020 is here, I'm looking forward to it. I feel like at the end of December, not the end of December, but December, we had so much going on that I was just like, oh my God, it 2020 is going to be a nightmare. It was a lot. And now I'm like, all right, what do you tell your clients, Shiloh? Little chunks. What's next? Right. <laughs> Don't it does get feel, it still feel really weird right now because this is the end of the first week, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the third is when we're recording. Yeah. And I'm tired. It's like we had a, oh, we had yeah. a lot during the I traveled during the holidays. I visited family in the south, and you have all your family obligations. It's like I want all the sweets to go away, and I just want like yep. miso soup for like a week. <laughs> that sounds so good. I've been pescatarian for a full month now. I, I couldn't do it. I, I was at lunch today with a colleague, and the meat at the place we were at smelled so good. Well, you also had to endure. You came over for New Year's Day and Dan was making cassoulet with his duck with the duck. I know. I opened up your invitation and I looked at my husband. I'm like, I hate our diet. Like, how (laughs) dare you make us do not diet, but whatever new lifestyle we're trying out. What's really funny is every, you know, he makes it like once every three years for New Year's Day and then has to like make sure that if there's anybody new at the dinner, he has to announce like... Be a careful. little goes a long way. A little. This is very rich. This is very, very rich. I think you said it expands in your stomach. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it was so good. So good. I'm so mad we didn't take a picture together at your party. <laughs> I know. I forgot. I just took a lot of Christmas pictures, which was great. I had remembered to do that. And the crazy thing that Apple does, you know, if you have an iPhone and you're using iPhoto, Especially on big holidays, you'll just get a little notification that pops up on your screen. It says, we've put together a movie of everything from the day. And then it goes out 
and it looks, I think what it automatically does is it recognizes some faces in certain scenarios and it takes out blurry, crappy pictures. Right. And you just have this um, beautiful memory set to music yeah. and it's all edited and soft focus and kind of amazing. It is fun. Anyway. It feels like forever since we recorded though. I know. So this we're is back. LA not so confidential. Oh, by the way, yeah. If Hi, you're folks. Uh, trying us out for the first time this year. <laughs> oh God, just listening to us. My chat. daughter my daughter has dropped a podcast episode since we recorded last. <laughs> That's so cool. She had her trailer up, right? She has a trailer up. She has her first episode up. She has four episodes in the queue. She's way more um, you know with it than we are. <laughs> That's great. And you're doing it on Anchor? Do you just do it on the phone on Anchor? Yeah, I've done everything on Anchor. No microphones or anything. That That's is great. super cool. That's kind of amazing how the technology is it advancing. Is. It's kind of cool. Okay, so we have a really cool episode today or a, a cool phenomenon. And it's one that I have to say, like, I remember before I was into, I think when I was just working at the master's level, I wasn't aware of this particular uh, mental health challenge, which is called Capgras syndrome. Uh, and it's usually the result of some brain damage. And I remember it being used on a law, a law and order episode mm-hmm. and wondering like, oh, I wonder if that's based on something real. And then remembering it all these years later going, I wonder if there actually are cases. And then you and I both did a deep dive and found yeah, some I didn't really significant I cases. A name. I mean, I'm not a law and order criminal minds person, but... Um, Those are not the same, Shiloh. I know. I have to keep them separate, and I did watch the clips, so okay. I know there's different people. Um, but, yeah, I didn't know there was a name for it, but I, I've been aware of it. I'm surprised this wasn't an X-Files episode. <laughs> you know how we did Folly Adieu and some other stuff that ends up in X-Files, and I tried searching, and it wasn't. There's a couple of X-Files episodes about doubles, though. Yeah, but yeah, true. So, Anyway, we're. How do you want to do this? Because um, we well, both have a bunch of information. Should we? We should start off with the symptomology, or should we start off with an example? Why don't we start off with history? Okay. So, well, so just a basic, basic um, definition. Um, Capgras syndrome, also known as Capgras delusion or imposter syndrome. So essentially the person believes that a loved one usually has been replaced by an imposter. It can also extend to more than one family member, um, pets, their home. So objects and locations as well. Right, right. So, and it, the person can otherwise act and function normally. And there's this one very specific delusion going on. So that's what we're talking about today. It's very, I would say very rare. I mean, we don't really hear about it a lot, right? but it is so bizarre and the people tend to be high functioning that have it, at least some of them, because there are different, (laughs) there's different sequelae that can result in this, right? Yeah. We'll talk about the different causes. Um, But this, this condition was first described in 1923 by a French psychiatrist known as Joseph Capgras, and it's C-A-P-G-R-A-S, not Cap, cat grass like you voice texted me, and I'm like, what the what fuck What the hell is, is cat grass? <laughs> Syndrome. <laughs> Capnet, what, what's going on? Um, so he had a patient that was a woman who had basically complained that a doppelganger had taken over the bodies of her husband, her friends, and her kids, and she had had... Several children, actually four of the five of them actually died. 
Um, but she thought they were being abducted and then replaced hmm. by um, imposters. And so it, in French, um, they uh, they say the, the syndrome is called illusion de Soisy. L'illusion de Soisy. So the illusion of lookalikes. Um, but she was 53 years old. She basically transformed everyone in her entourage into an imposter and said that they were all being replaced and um, actually had various numerous doubles that would stand in for her husband and her daughter. Um, she also had a, a delusion that she was of royal lineage and very wealthy um, when she wasn't. But um, Which that sounds like what we would call a comorbid issue because that's a particular delusion because cap cry sure. is specifically about other people and objects and locations in so so uh, the other one is a grandiose delusion yeah right right which is way more um common but it it was interesting because there wasn't really much specifically on this until cup started writing about it with his intern and studied this patient who they call madam m um but Essentially, he he was a little bit forward-thinking in that he hypothesized at one point that there was a biological brain disorder, but then kind of jumped on the bandwagon of the time of the psychodynamic Which was the whole Freudian bullshit about this. Yeah, that essentially, um, you know, going back to sexual repression, that if... You know, if a if a let's say a son believes his mother has been replaced by an imposter, that it's because of the repressed sexual attraction that he feels to his mom. So, like the like a a, a wildly displaced Oedipal projection. Yes. So the whole Oedipus complex yes. that men are having a, a, a very deeply buried drive to have sex with their mothers. Exactly. So. That's there. It's, sorry, suppressed, not repressed. Um, And then maybe after some sort of trauma, head trauma, that rises to the surface. And in order to deal with this conflict of why am I attracted to my mother, your subconscious creates, oh, it's an imposter. It's an imposter, a double. That's why I'm attracted to her. Right, right. So that pretty much reigned supreme throughout the 30s when people were seeing this. Um, it really wasn't until like the 60s and 70s until we started seeing research being done and alternative explanations for it. Well, I remember reading that part and there was a, psych- a psychiatrist on YouTube who will link to that particular uh Documentary, which was really good, is Dr. Ramachandran, an Indian psychiatrist who's very well spoken, talked about how the research in that area disproved it because they started realizing that it was not just mom. Right. It was siblings, and they could animals. go, oh, well, maybe it's sex. And then it became animals, and they're like, oh, wait, not everybody can have like yeah, these bestiality urges. Explain it all away. Yeah. And especially when it started into inanimate objects, too. But yeah, he he does such a great job at explaining it to the layperson of what's going on here. Um, so the the person with the syndrome acknowledges that the imposter looks exactly like the person, yet there's a disconnect there, and they feel that it, it there's a disguise. They can see through the disguise, I guess. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about why that is, but like we said, they can, they can act pretty normally otherwise, but obviously it'd be very upsetting 
to all parties involved. Very disturbing. <laughs> so um, you see things like anxiety and fear, sometimes violence. I have a couple notes about um, how this weaves into violence. Sometimes leads to obsessiveness about finding the real person. I mean, you can imagine just how crazy you would feel if you well, thought an imposter was living with you. Thought about Think about it if, if you were a mom and, uh, with this disorder and your child. Oh, my God. You feel like your child is not your child, which is the, one of the sort of a version of the, one of the historical yeah. versions I'm going to give. The idea that someone has stolen your, your baby and replaced it with a mm-hmm. fake. So you've got this sense of loss. And also, you know, what, what am I going to do with this? Sure. This little fake person I'm supposed to take care of. And it is more common in women than men. Do you want to talk about the historical case? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, once, just to circle back around to what you were saying, so when we talk about delusions, we're talking about um, fixed beliefs that are not true. That's the, the easiest way to define it. And we talk about Capgras being a delusion and that it is a syndrome. And the reason we say it's a syndrome is it's a syndrome. It's a condition that arises as a symptom out of another thing. So it right. could be a mini stroke, which da- damages a portion of the brain. It could be a traumatic brain injury. What were some of the other, was it Alzheimer's? Like Alzheimer's, we can see in Alzheimer's, dementia. Dementia patients and then... Brain you said brain lesions, right? Mm-hmm. And also brain lesions. And then since it is uh, can be common in schizophrenia right. too. Right. But I think the mechanics, when it when it emerges in mechan- in schizophrenia, it's a different mechanic. Yes. yes. So because um, it can be treated with antipsychotics. At right. That point, they, they can sometimes those that delusion will kind of recede a little bit. So what we do know about it, as uh, that we'll get into, is that it is an issue regarding brain and or neurological processing. So um, it can be about people, definitely. It primarily is about people. But it can also not just be one replacement. It can be an individual who believes that their loved one or family members are replaced with multiple copies or multiple imposters. Like one of the examples you and I saw uh, in a couple of the documentaries Mm -hmm. were well, you know, the woman who comes in pretending to be my wife on Tuesdays is a way better cook than the two others that come in on the other days. Well, so it's she needs a break. So. I guess. <laughs> they send the It's like the Truman show, like they can't be on right. camera all the time. <laughs> exactly. They have to take a break. So, um and then there was one case also, uh, David, who is in one of the documentaries mm-hmm. online, he even had sort of an episode of what we call uh, depersonalization, where he questioned whether or not he was the real David. Right. So that's even takes it a step further than some of the cases Question we're going to talk about it. So it really, it, it, to me, felt like an offshoot. And this is going back to like grad school 101 of agnosia. Yeah. Like one of those first diagnoses you sort of learn about with um, in neuropsych, which is essentially the inability to interpret sensations, which leads to the inability to recognize things like visually. And I remember coming home and, you know, having to memorize all these and talking to my husband about what agnosia is. And it's so funny because to this day, sometimes he'll be like, you look different. I'm having agnosia. Like, <laughs> like He'll and look at me kind of sideways. And now I'm blanking on which one. So we had there's because there's aphasia. there's aphasia, anosognosia, and there's propopsognosia, yes. where it's where the person is unable to recognize faces. Correct. Like they can recognize Correct. gait, dress mm-hmm. style, 
vocal. Birthmarks. But like they, they'll say, oh, this person has this birthmark on their arm. It's my husband. But they can't recognize the facial structure. Right. Even like, you know, celebrities or yeah. whomever. Um, we had a, so we had a professor at Antioch that had that, which really? was fascinating. Yeah, he would lecture in the classes about. And one of, one of our classmates is like, so you can't see my face? No, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> I can see it. We can see it. I just I'm can't not, recognize it. There's not a blur pixelation over <laughs> right. your face like, right now. Like you've been unfriended or something. <laughs> um, but so there's an interesting story. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a historical story because you know I love all the weird shit. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to we're going to talk um, about the actual sort of mechanics of how this happens. But back in 1895, there was a young woman. Well, she was born Bridget Boland in Ireland in County Tipperary. And um, she lived about a quarter of a century, which was, I wouldn't say that was typical for that time. It's, you know, it's not in medieval times, but that she died very young. And the way she died, which was pretty brutal, is that her husband became convinced that she was a changeling. Now, in European folklore and myth, a changeling is a fairy that has been replaced, has taken your loved one and been replaced with another fairy that's being thrown out of the tribe or being substituted with the idea that like they're always, they can't really procreate. So they're always stealing human babies. So it's more often seen in children where, where the belief is that children can be stolen. So it was also used as a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Of, Don't go out at night because the fairies will get you. But this man, uh, uh, Mr. Cleary became convinced after his wife's protracted illness that she was a changeling. He just came in one day and said, this is not Bridget. This is a fairy. Um, and now leading up to it, she was quite a successful businesswoman for the time. This was somebody who was like a very strong willed woman, which we'll come back to. But this was someone who, this was also the age when Singer sewing machines had just come on the market. And women who were proficient with the Singer sewing machines could be very successful as seamstresses and dressmakers. So this young woman kind of makes a deal with her husband and her dad who has like the version of government housing at the time. So they're living with him, not really paying a lot of money. A lot of money starts coming in, but she gets really sick after being out one night. And back then, you know, no antibiotics. So a cold leads to an infection. She gets bronchitis. She's basically, they had no idea of, you know, needing fresh air or what was needed. So she was in a closed, overheated room for days, coughing and hacking. And apparently one of the theories is that her her husband suffered a, a psychotic break. And that break, we don't know if there was a a head injury, but he became completely fixed in his belief, his delusion, that she was a changeling to the point where they called the town priest in and the the doctor was called in and the, the doctor was like, your wife is sick. Here's medicine. She needs to get well. His response was, well, we're using a different kind of medicine and then proceeded to throw a jar of urine oh. on his wife. And they kept allergic to urine. Exactly. Something was supposed to be some kind of allergic to human urine or something. And there was something in his belief system, which he may have heard from one of the priests, is that she had to admit that she was a changeling. And when she admitted that she was a changeling, then the changeling would have to leave the body and his wife, Bridget, could come back. Yeah. So it's almost like the old witch. sort of the Salem witch trials is like if we throw you in the water sure. and you sink and drown, well, you're innocent. But if you float, 
the holy waters are rejecting you and we're going to burn you at the stake. Yeah. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. One of the things that happens that is interesting, uh, is also interesting, is that he was not the only person that ended up threatening her and beating her and wounding her. He got the whole family, including her father and several other relatives, to the point where he, at one point, she was screaming and crying, I'm, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? He pulls uh, a firebrand, you know, a flaming log out of the fireplace and basically clubs her with it. So she doesn't get completely knocked out, but he sets her dress on fire. And then he becomes convinced, well, we'll just burn the fairy out of you. And he throws a jar of, of kerosene on her, sets her on fire. And nobody here, like suddenly the house goes silent. Like, you know, Mm. they're not hearing anything. The doctor's like, huh, I wonder how Bridget's doing. But he doesn't go to check on her. And when finally the neighbors go to the local, you know, sheriff or whatever law enforcement there was, like, hey, something's going on at the Cleary house. They go up and his response is, the husband's response is like, oh, she's just been away for a couple of days. She'll come back. And as they question and question and question, he goes, well... The reality is, like, she got stolen by a fairy, and we've got a changeling <laughs> well, body here's here. Here's story. what's going on. <laughs> so they go in, and they identify the body, and it, they had she had not burned all the way through. It was easy to identify that that oh, was her. God. He was still in the belief that it was the process of, like, they just had to wait until... The fairy wow. escaped the body and she would come back. So he did, they uh, put him on trial. He was put on trial for manslaughter, which was an, a concept at the time mm-hmm. as well, and did 14 years in prison and then shipped off to Montreal from Ireland. So oh. he actually lived until about 1910 Oof. with no other supposed uh, incidents. However, the other family members, and it kind of makes you wonder was there foley ado? Right. You know, had he strong armed the other family members into hurting her or did they? start believing it because he had convinced them. I mean, when someone has a fervid, fervid delusion, it is possible to bring other people into right. the delusion. It seemed very convincing. Now, the other side of it is this was a really odd time for a woman to be as successful as she was. Yes. So was there money motivation? Did he really have that delusional belief? Or did May- he just not like the fact that his wife was making all that money? Could be. I mean, that's that's unfortunately as much as we love kind of exploring the forensic uh, intersection in these mm-hmm. kind of things is that the the real details are lost to history. Sure. And the wonderful podcast Lore, which does all sorts of spooky and weird things, they do a great episode of this. Um, mm. And it's also been it's been a stage play that's played around the world off Broadway and at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So that's oh, wow. it's and it's there's also a creepy creepy children's uh, nursery rhyme which is Arya witch or Arya fairy or Arya the wife of Michael Clary. Ew! I want Sydney to learn. An, oh my god! An Irish accent and say it. Isn't that cool? <laughs> that is creepy. So it does sound like I mean we don't have any necessarily any evidence that he had uh, experienced a brain. Uh, damage or any kind of head injury prior to that, but it is possible that under the stress of this is the breadwinner of the house, right. she's dying. She, you know, she's got or she's got this horrific infection, and we don't know how to take care of it. You know, brief psychotic episode is a completely uh, a, yes. a legitimate possibility. She's challenging his ego, and he's a uh, intimate partner offender. True, but if and if that was, I mean, if we kind of look at it. From that standpoint, is that really going to help him along his goal, though? 
Like, I don't know. If he's like, challenged by her, is he? What's the motivation? Is he right. going to inherit all that money and the house? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. So, going back now to what the current theory of understanding about mm-hmm. how the mechanics of this work is that when and this is purely looking at it as a biological brain absolutely. disorder. So we, we mentioned there's the Alzheimer's or dementia that there's oftentimes psychosis that alters their reality when they're diagnosed with that, or it might be a hallmark delusion of schizophrenia, but we're sort of moving on to more brain disorder. Right. We're talking more, yeah, on. more like a lesion or like there's been an injury to right. the head. So, uh, and the, the, the most of this information comes from people with Capgra that actually have been in accidents mm-hmm. that yep. have caused verifiable brain damage that can be seen on an MRI. Right. So that mechanical explanation comes from the idea that when we look at an object, the visual message of an object, whether that object is a, uh, a place, um, a material object, or an individual, that that visual image goes to the temporal lobes, the visual centers of the brain, but seeing is not just one, the, the singular process. It's part of a multiple level of process. So after you've recognized it, you have to respond to the object emotionally on some level. And you might have a very low uh, emotional response to something. You might have a very high emotional response to something. But um, when it's it's obvious that when you work look at something that you're passionate about, whether it's something that's related to a hobby or you hear a piece of music, in that instance, you're having an auditory synthesis of auditory information and how you're emotionally reacting to the music. Mm-hmm. Same thing could be for looking at a work of art, but in this case, we're talking about looking at loved ones. You're not just looking at your husband or your wife. You're looking at them and your entire body is reacting. It's kind of like they talk about one of the things we know about cats and dogs is that when cats and dogs are sitting in the room with you and they're looking at you directly, they're actually hugging you. They're having an emotional, visual, synthetic response of moving all those emotions together. They just don't express it the way humans right. do. They don't come. Sometimes they come up to you and right. and give you um, affection. But what we're trying to um, illustrate is that the process involves not only the visual cortex, but also what we call the limbic system. There's a part of our brain called the hippocampus, which is this sort of, well, it's supposed to look like a seahorse, because I think, is it Greek? I think hippocampus is the Greek word for seahorse. Anyway, it's like a curved organ deep within our brain, and it wraps around another part of the uh, another brain structure called the amygdala. And the amygdala is part of the limbic system. It's basically just sort of like literally the highway of processing emotional yep. in, in, uh, information. Yep. So it's taking our emotional response information and our visual response information, and it's creating a combination. It's creating an experience. And the hippocampus is responsible for memory processing as well. Right. So, you know, how do you look at a loved one and you know that you love them or you feel that it's from your experience with them, right. your memories. And it them. works. I think the, the time it goes into overdrive is when we sleep because that's when mm-hmm. it takes all the day's information of short-term memory, short-term information, and it processes it and figures out what's going to stay in the long-term memory versus what it's going to let go. Right. Kind of like Bebop. Remember, was it, was it Bebop and Inside Out? Yes. It was Bebop, yes, right? I think so. That was the one that had been lurking around right, in right, her right. memory forever. Yes. 
<laughs> so, so um, it's a disconnect between yes the area that processes facial familiarity, the FFA, the fusiform face area, and the oh amygdala. I forgot that word. Good for you. FFA. Um, so you don't you can see them and say this looks like my loved one, but I don't get the feeling that it's my loved exactly, one. Exactly, which kind of goes back to another thing that we had talked about in the past, which is Uncanny Valley. Right. It's the same thing that yes. happens when you look at a humanoid robot that is off. Mm-hmm. It's like you you and that's not even something you have an emotional uh, reaction to you just Gut. know like uh something's off here so this yeah. is akin to that and in a way but in a way much more um disturbing emotionally because it's someone that you are supposed to have emotional connection with right and you know and, it's not a robot i mean this is a person so it must right. be the imposter i i was able to wrap my head around this when i saw a statement that basically it's a delusion of emotion when most illusions are sensory Oh, I hadn't heard that. That's great. Yes, that's exactly what it is, which seems so odd because we always think of delusions in terms of, you know, things you see or not things you see, but beliefs that are more messing with um, sensory issues. Where did you read that? Which one? Which research? Um, I think that was actually something that Capgras wrote in his original paper on Madame M. I like that a lot. Yeah. That just really, really, really grabs it. So... And it's also where, so the individual is also questioning themselves on a sort of a subconscious level or maybe a meta level is like, I know that I'm supposed to be having this emotional response. I'm supposed to be feeling this emotional warmth, this connection. I'm not feeling it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. it can't be real. Mm -hmm. This cannot be, this can't be the person I care for. Right. So So, I I, I just want to mention one study um, that looked at Capgras patients and a third of them had brain lesions. And I think it's... You mentioned it, but it's important to talk about the MRIs and the brain mapping, and we didn't have this information until we were able to do all that. So technology had to also catch up with how we're diagnosing folks, like with lots of different things. Um, This study also, when they were testing Capgra patients, what they'll do... um, is almost like hooking them up like to lie detector instruments and show them photos of their loved ones. Uh, what's it? The galvanic, galvanic skin, skin response. response. So we, a galvanic skin response can measure even the most infinitesimal levels of perspiration. Uh, perspiration. Right. So they'll show them photos of their loved ones as well as photos of strangers, and they basically have the same non-reaction. Yeah. Um, so I think what we haven't mentioned that really hits this home is that for people with Capgras syndrome, it really is only that visual element because they have been able to hear their loved one's voices while not looking at them, talking to them on the phone and say, yeah, this is my loved one because that visual component is not there. Um but the auditory component is still there. It's so still intact. the, con- the yes. auditory connection to the emotional center is still intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it is very, very specific. Um, also in this study, they showed subjects with Capgras syndrome, a series of photographs, basically of a model who was looking in different directions, someone they didn't know. Um, and the people with Capgras syndrome would say that they were all different people. So what they were looking at is how they were essentially creating separate memory files for each 
of the pictures of the same model looking in different directions. There would be a different memory file for each one. Isn't that so interesting? I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around that. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, I understand what yeah, you're okay. saying, but I'm I'm trying to figure out why. Like that seems like a completely different. It, it it's was another just, part of it, that brain damage. Yeah, it right? was one of those pieces of saying this is connected to memory building. Definitely. Okay, got it, got um, it. Memory building or memory loss, however you want to put it. And I don't think they quite knew what to do with it yet. It was just like, whoa, okay. Well, because that <laughs> almost sounds like that. that propo, pro, I can never pronounce propo, it. Pro, shit, profophonosia. I have to look at the term. Facial, facial blindness. Yeah. But that's... It's, it, I don't know. It was super interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to read more about that. That's I had not read that in I'll the link research that study at all. Too. Yeah, that's very interesting. I love all this stuff. It takes me right back to neuropsych class and my internship that I did in neuropsych. It's so interesting. Anyway, I'll find it. Anything else that you want to add? Well, there was one thing <laughs> that was really like I mean, just knowing because we have friends that are Aussie as well. Is there's a British and an Aussie saying of when somebody's gone crazy, okay. they say they've gone off with the fairies. And apparently, in the Cleary story, Michael's mom had disappeared for a while. And he kept hounding Bridget, where's mom, where's mom, where's mom? And she said, I don't know, your mom's off with the fairies. And that supposedly was one of the things that kind of pushed him over the edge. So oh, it sounds no. like there was a, like a little bit of DV going on, and maybe they had been arguing or something. But like, and I'm, um, I mean, maybe I'm reading into how she said it. But like, I think, snarky, of yeah, course. like kind of snarky. And, well, you your know, mom's gone off with the fairies. fairies. I'll show you the fairies. Yeah, Ugh. exactly. Should we talk about the TV shows that it's been? Yeah, it's been. Well, yeah, the first one I saw was a Law and Order episode. SVU, right? SVU, which was really um, heartbreaking because, you know, of course they start off like the the pre-story is this just, you know, filthy, neglected looking little orphan, you know, uh, Orphan. What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Ragamuffin wandering the streets of New York that gets found, mm-hmm. and she's you know hasn't eaten and she's malnourished and basically just been left in the street. And they get the story of where she's from and what her name is, and they go and they you know kind of tear the house up, and it turns out it's a like a real disgusting couple that's like sitting, you know, playing video games all day and clearly there's drug use and the place is filthy. And you find out that the dad is a drug addict and, you know, just a all around Dick and doesn't really care about the kid. And the mom is actually, that's a, like a boyfriend. And Mm -hmm. the mom is the biological mother of the daughter Uh who had been, in a bus accident and gotten a traumatic brain injury. And she actually no longer recognized this little girl as her daughter. Oh, so she started. The mom ne- was in the bus accident. Yeah. Gotcha. So she st- no longer recognized her daughter as her own and was being really mean to her and they weren't feeding her and they were like, just get lost, you know? Right. And wasn't he abusing her or something? I or? think he was abusing her too. He had been beating her, but I don't know but if there was sexual like, abuse. Eh, it's not my daughter, so. Why do I care, right? I'm going to play my video game. So one of the things that we talked about is that, that we know about the research that they integrate into this storyline is the idea that the auditory and emotional processing is still there. So they talked to B.D. Wong's character, I think, and he said, well, maybe we can reintroduce them by, we can try and kind of 
help support those pathways by letting her connect to the voice. Mm -hmm. So they separate them Mm -hmm. in two different rooms, and the little girl is calling out to her mom. The mom's face lights up. She immediately recognizes the voice. Yeah, it's an intercom, and her mom's sobbing and sobbing. And the direction was for the little girl. She was supposed to stay in the room and not go through the door. And of course, the mom is like, "Baby, come to me, please, 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 come to me." And Mm -hmm. the little girl, you know, thinks she's got her mom back. She runs through the door, and the mom immediately just starts screaming at you, "You're not my daughter. You're not my daughter." And so, I think they end up like you know, DCFS or Child Protective Services comes in. And but that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. I think that's probably like a. 14 or 15 year old episode um i have season 12 it's called bullseye i don't know what how many seasons there are two i now, think they're but, over 20 oh my god um criminal minds had one too um so season seven episode three it was um a cop that gets into a traffic accident and then he develops Capgras syndrome and doesn't recognize his family, his wife and his daughters. And I just know there's like a really tense scene where there's like a standoff with him and you know whoever the investigators are in criminal minds and they blindfold him. They explain it to him and then they blindfold him, get him, put the gun down and then the wife comes in and hugs him. So same thing, like he can hear her, so but he can not hear see her, and he'll have the sensei because right. there's also a sensor, uh, a physical sensory right. process as well, tactile, what we call right. it. So she's hugging him and saying, "You just can't look at me. We're going to go to the hospital together." And then sort of sounds like same thing, like the blindfold drops and he like loses his shit again and oh wow doesn't recognize her and says that they've been taken over. Um, and then did you know there's a Scrubs episode? <laughs> no, and I thought I knew all the Scrubs episodes. What does Scrubs there's do with it? There's a Scrubs episode where a patient has Capgras syndrome, and they're talking about it. And so he doesn't recognize the treating physician as the same guy that was there in the morning. So they just start fucking with the patient. Like, yeah, that guy sucks. Like, but, you know, da, 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 and they're just messing with him. It's hilarious. And the guy's like, yeah, that guy's really weird. You know, <laughs> like talking about them as if they're two different people. So... It's definitely a Scrubs take yeah. on it. Yeah. <laughs> Where they're like, let's just screw with this guy. Yeah, some things don't age too well. Yeah, really, I know. The, as we get more sensitive to, like, you know, mental illness issues. Yeah, true. Because it sounds like really these examples are quite heartbreaking. Oh, yeah. I it, To say it would be distressing is, um, yeah, putting it mildly, I think. Yeah. And especially with going back to this. Um, documentary that you can find on YouTube with David yeah. that um, the the adult male that was involved in a car accident, he, I don't know if he lived with his parents before or afterwards, but clearly they have this like huge home and he's they're, staying with them. Yeah. And they're oh, like, he I has think like a back apartment. He has like a, like a guest house or mm-hmm. something like that. But he believes that both of them have been replaced and, um, well, yeah, we'll say things to like his dad, like, "Well, the other guy is a really much better driver than you are," and talks to the mom about her cooking, and the other lady's much better at the cooking than you are, and um, he's, and he's one. one of the, I was—he's one of the ones that has the location place right. too, where every once in a while he'll get agitated and say, "I just want to go to my apartment. I need to go to my apartment. This is not my apartment." And the mom would say, "This is your apartment. This is where you live." No, this is not my apartment. So she found that a workaround was for her to walk him out the front door, go down the steps, mm-hmm. around. It looked like it's kind of an estate almost. Yeah, yeah. Around to the backyard and walk him through the yard into the other entrance of his apartment. And he would go, 
Yes, okay. this is my place. This yeah. is the place I'm supposed to be. So, uh, gosh, they seemed like they were handling it so well, but it must be just so incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, he they seemed... They found their ways, but... Yeah, I mean, and, and it, I think it had been years by the time this is done. So, sure. I mean, sometimes when, when, and when you have the means, I mean, I can't imagine a family of lower income having to deal with that without resources. That'd be oh, brutal, sure. just brutal. Sure. yeah. So, one of the places that we got some more information of how I shared the mechanical issue was a website. There's a psychologist named Dr. Duffy who has a great podcast. I listened to a couple of episodes, and he's got a blog and a vlog and he does some informational videos on YouTube and he actually has a client that has Capgra, a male client. And he gives an example which was very interesting. And he's also very upfront about there isn't really a successful treatment for this right sure. now. It can't be fixed. We don't I mean who knows, maybe in the future if there was some kind of miraculous stem cell Right. You know, where you could just inject it right into that area that would reconnect those fibers or help that repair. But unless for, it's like a lesion that you can go in and remove. Right. And then the brain tissue can kind of regenerate around it. But right now you, there's very little to do. So what he does is he talks about, you know, which is a really important to remember whenever you're working with someone delusional, which is something in working with law enforcement and, and in crisis care. When I do encounter, and I haven't encountered a number of delusional people either organically or under the influence of substances, you don't enter into their delusion and you don't deny their delusion. You focus on, well, this sounds like it's really distressing to you. So how can I help you with the distress? Like maybe we can talk about how to deal with the depression or the anxiety Mm -hmm. that comes from this. So. Dr. Duffy speaks, you know, very cogently on working on the emotional aspect of how to deal with, you know, this must be very difficult for you and like how, how can we get around this? What do you think would help? You know, so that he's also creating a therapeutic alliance. So he's not really with this male client able to get to the point where he develops true insight into the individual so that the guy can even admit there's something wrong with me. Hmm. But I still believe this, you know, which is very difficult and delusional. But his most successful intervention was having, because the guy was convinced that, like, he felt guilty because he was sleeping with a woman that's not his wife. (laughs) It's like, there's this woman, she looks like my wife, and she's really nice. I like her a lot. But she's not my, you know, yeah, I don't want to get in trouble, and, like, I feel really bad. So one of the interventions that was successful is that his wife, when they were in the home together, if she was in the kitchen or in another room talking, he would know that it was her. Mm-hmm. So what she would do would be to keep up a dialogue nonstop, not asking him questions, but like describing, hey, I think what we're going to do for dinner tonight is blah, 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 and slowly move into his visual range as she's talking. Wow. And he is kind of indicating that that was the one thing that seemed to have a little bit of impact where at least his client could question. Like those two things couldn't cancel each other out. In that moment. In the moment. I don't think that it stuck. I don't think that it stuck because it goes back to what you're talking about with that sort of fragmented Uh memory Uh um, implantation or integration. So it doesn't really seem like it would have a long-lasting effect, but at least it could. Or he doesn't have enough time to think about it in the moment because he's interacting with her. Right. So So that might sustain for a few minutes or a few hours or maybe the night. But I thought that was pretty creative. So. We'll put a link up to his site, too, so you can hear him. See anything, because I didn't, about 
like forming new relationships with people, it probably wouldn't have the same effect, right? Because they're no, I didn't, and that was the question in all the research that I was going to ask you if you had gotten to is that maybe we should have asked each other before we record. Well, we're, well or no, <laughs> this kidding. is this, this is how we do it. This is kind of right. people are sitting here listening to us as we try and figure this out. What I find interesting is is like if there's damage to that area and you're talking about it is now affecting the person's ability to integrate like even profiles and face frontal shots, mm-hmm. not understand that they're different people. Can they actually form new relationships even with other people? Right. Besides just the loved ones? Yeah. Or are they going to have this sort of truncated, limited emotional life? And I think I've shared, I know I've shared in here at one point, I'm not sure which episode it was on, but we had a lecture in my doctoral program. One of my professors brought in a client of hers. and who this? And I'm not broaching any confidentiality. All this woman lectures and speaks publicly about having a traumatic brain injury that occurred about 28 years ago. And her injury basically is the result that we have a lot of safety mechanisms on recreational vehicles, oh, like right. before this accident. A lot of recreational vehicles did not have seat belts and could flip over very easily. And her, she had what was called a brain bleed at her brain stem on like just a, just fell off like a little cart. It was not a big deal except that she was dizzy and had some problems. And like they called a friend of theirs that was on the mainland. They were on an Island. The guy was like, no, you got to air vac her back. This is a brain bleed. Really worried. So she was living with her husband for 15 years, I remember her giving the lecture and talking about she remembers loving her husband, mm-hmm. but she doesn't love him anymore. And I remember it like kicking me in the chest. Yeah. Like I had such a reaction to that and the idea that 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 could be taken away from her. And she goes, I really like him. He's a nice guy. He treats me very well. I remember the way I used to feel, but it's like I hit this wall this emotional wall and it's, you know, she was, you know, she didn't have full vocabulary as well. So it was a little bit hard for her to develop. Now, the good thing is, is that I heard many years later, like 11 or 12 years later, she was lecturing to another class Mm -hmm. and she had had some improvement. She was like, I'm having more feelings for him. But like you were saying, I don't know if it's that the old feelings were coming back or she was finally able to develop new new feelings for him. Sure. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. Just crazy stuff. Okay, so there's a couple of other things that are really interesting in the psychiatric journals about Capgra is that they even differentiate it further from other conditions that are similar and just as rare. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Did you read about that, the uh-huh. Frigoli uh-huh. and the intermetamorphosis? I think that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So Frigoli syndrome is based on Leopoldo Frigoli, who was a, an entertainer in the 19th century, and he was basically what we would call today as a quick-change artist. And they're they're actually kind of interesting. You've seen them sometimes on America America's Got Talent or uh, talent shows like that. A great example of it, if anybody watches the stage show of Frozen, there's an amazing, amazing costume change that happens when Elsa, you know, kind of steps into her power. And right. it's you can watch it on YouTube and, like, you can play it on really slow. And even on really slow, it's mind-blowing really? how, the, how fast the costume changes. But She, like, takes her braid out of her hair. And well, then she does. Around. Yeah, yeah. She does it just like in the cartoon. But, like, the dress... 
disappearing is like really kind of amazing and it's like well, they do it in Aladdin too with Jafar the stage production oh really like changes costume oh like when he the becomes the really bad genie yeah that's your Broadway talk for this uh, there's your Broadway you have to have that with us so Fregoli syndrome is this delusional belief that one or more familiar people um, that are known to the patient are you are seen as persecutors and what they are is they're the same people one or two or three people but they're repeatedly changing their appearance right and now how that is actually becoming we can bring that forward into here into the year 2020 is a phenomenon called gang stalking and if you're working with someone who feels that they're being dang, gang stalked if they have that delusional belief which is really tough to work with because there's nothing, there's no way you can deny any of it. There's no even no way to sort of even generally reason with the the idea that the person believes that everyone is following them. And they right. can look at, they can look at just a person across the street going, no, that's her. Mm-hmm. She was down the street before she put on a wig and that's a different dress, but I know it's the same person. Right. How do you know it's the same person? I just know. I can tell. So we call that Fregoli. Um, also, there's another one called Intermetamorphosis, and it's another sort of misidentification syndrome that we talk about when the person believes that familiar people, people familiar to them, have exchanged identities. So for those of you that are old enough, the episode of Gilligan's Island where Ginger and Marianne <laughs> switch identities. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's very funny. So it's been talked that like they've... Um, uh, they've done it in sort of in science fiction and horror movies like in The Sixth Day where Arnold Schwarzenegger has a character he's been cloned that he didn't know about. Battlestar Galactica with their whole, okay, spoiler alert for okay. a show that's been on, you know, it's been in reruns for what, like 15 years, has a whole clone, like half of the population is clones and don't, uh, they're actually Cylons and they don't realize they're Cylons. And um, Star Trek has used it uh, several times as well. Hmm. So there's another one, I forget, I kept reading it. Is it the mirrored, the mirrored misidentification? No, but it was talking about like people's organs have been replaced or oh, are yeah. missing, like they don't have organs. Well, that's really close to the cadaver syndrome where the person believes they're dead. Yes, there's that one. Yeah, they well. believe that they're dead or putrefication syndrome yes. where an individual believes that not only are they dead, but they're rotting. Yes. <laughs> and wow. those, but there's what's interesting about all these are like they're either, once again, like Capcraw, mm-hmm. they're either related to... Uh, an already existing form of psychosis or brain lesions. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the, the mirrored misidentification means that, um, a person looks at their reflection in a mirror and they believe that that's a stranger. They can't recognize themselves in that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, there's all different versions of this. And what's very, very interesting is that at least in one case that we're going to talk about today, uh, it's gotten somebody off yeah. a murder charge. Right. Do you right. want to talk about that? Um, yeah, why don't I start with that one? So, Niall Stapleton, this is just in 2013 in Ireland. And he was, or is, or he was at the time, a 32 year old college student. And in 2006, as a teenager, he had been involved in drug use and was essentially what we know now misdiagnosed with drug-induced psychosis, but 
eventually in 2008 properly diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, but was not medication compliant and even had delusions about governmental conspiracies to get people on medication. And so his delusion revolved around medication, which kept him from being medication compliant uh, to treat his psychosis. Um, But he lived, because of all these troubles, he did live with his family in Ireland. A lot of just bizarre behavior. His mom had to fly to Australia once to go get him. He just turned up in a psychiatric hospital there. Um, He had tried to rob a bank once just by basically passing a note saying, give me all your money. No violence, (laughs) nothing like that. But I just want the money. Got arrested for attempting to rob a bank. Um, So a long history of bizarre behavior. And the the day before his crime occurred, he was at a family barbecue, and everyone said he was acting very erratically um, and paranoid. He accused his brother-in-law of putting LSD in his beer. Um, he was talking about not wanting to go to the barber shop because he was afraid he was going to get abducted or taken hostage mm. there. Um, And the next day, he was in the backyard at the family home and saw his mother in, like, the garage or, you know, a structure out in the garden area and thought for sure that she had been replaced by someone else um, posing as his mother and also mentioned that he thought he saw, like, a dark figure sort of sneak away through the hedges. Um, So he saw his mom and said, that's an imposter. I need to kill the imposter. And it would disintegrate from the body. So as soon Which as she kind of like what the we're with, with the fairies, yeah. right? Yeah, if you, true. if you kill the body, you're not and killing the body. Ireland also? Yeah, it was Irish. Okay. Well, so, so we're, I mean, it may be that there's, you know, the, the, the lore, the, the lore, the the myth of that, but the idea that you're not really killing the person, you're killing the entity or the right. you're the imposter. Yeah. So yeah, that lore may still have um, fueled his delusion just in that part of the world. Um, but as soon as she came out of the shed, he took the the handle of a shovel and beat her in the head. Um, she ended up surviving a little bit, but I think on the way to the hospital, she ended up dying. And he was, I I couldn't, through various articles, couldn't figure out why, but he was arrested after the funeral. Um, He had a four-day trial, and forensic psychiatrists testified on both sides, essentially agreeing that he met the criteria for a special verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity, meaning that he, at the time of his crime, was insane or believed that he was killing this doppelganger and not his mother. Which we've talked about before. The NGI defense is so rare. Yeah. You, you, I mean, we never hear of it today no. being successfully used. No. I mean, so. people try saying that they're incompetent to stand trial way more than right. I was insane at the time that I committed the crime. Um, and it, it took a 
jury, you know, less than a day, several hours, but to come back and say that that was appropriate and that he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And what were the substances again? Did we, did they do a talk screen or is that information available of what his drug of choice was? No, all I saw was that he had dabbled in drugs a lot when he was younger, like a teenager. And that's when he was misdiagnosed at the time of this. I don't know if he was self-medicating with illicit substances or not. I didn't see anything. So an underlying mental illness, yeah, you know, self-medicating with probably a, most likely a combination. I mean, I mean, at least alcohol. He was drinking alcohol at yeah. a barbecue and <laughs> thought there was LSD in it. So, um, so you yeah. know, which is also another interesting thing that happens. And we're going to link as we do for our shows, this, the, our research materials, which are so good. One of the ones that is the best, and I only am skimming the surface of it because I, we could spend a whole episode just on this. It's a, from the Journal of American uh, Academy of Psychiatry, The Masks of Identities, Who's Who. It's delusional misidentification syndrome. So, you know, the Frigoli mis- uh, metamorphosism um, and Capgra are all talked about. It's a really interesting article. It's free to download, um, so we can link to it. I think that that's really interesting because they talk about when we try look try and look at the actual violence that's connected to these syndromes. It's it's rare, right? However, when it does happen, it's intimate partners. Yes. So. And one of the ones that, like you were saying, it actually, even though we're not giving examples today of women being perpetrators or victims who are um, diagnosed with this syndrome, mm-hmm. they are the most common perpetrators, especially when they're mothers. There's a special amount of violence that gets, and this is where it does actually, you circle back around to Freudian and, Freudian and primal drives right. of, you know, there is nothing more terrifying than mama bear you know so the the belief even in this psychotic delusion that this thing in my crib my baby's crib has taken my baby yeah you know there's a potential there for a lot of violence well and then i found in the uh, i wasn't able to access the entire article just so frustrating i guess i could have paid 40 dollars for it but um in the journal of forensic and legal medicine there was a case review and it's called mental illness violence and delusional misidentifications the role of Capgras syndrome in matricide so sons killing their moms which is it is an issue in working in community mental health uh, yes. um, it's a huge issue because I mean, and that really does have to go back to basic object relations, good mm-hmm. breast, bad breast, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that there's a whole developmental period of the child not knowing the difference between itself and the mother. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, and especially male male children towards their moms. There is just this unbridled rage that is really frightening at times. Yeah. I, I'm going to still see if I can access this, but essentially they did two case presentations of psychotic sons suffering from Capgras syndrome. Um just said that it may be a specific risk factor to violence towards others, particularly mothers. But kind of interesting, especially when we're looking at threat assessment, violence, risk assessment. You know what I got? It's funny because I follow somebody like the one of the Facebook groups that's about um, science academics, and it's all different versions of science. And somebody put out, I had never even thought about this, because I've contacted researchers and said, hey, I read your research. Can I interview you? Those kind of things have always worked out really well. But this female researcher posted, 
hey, by the way, we don't get paid for any of those article journals. We get paid nothing. I know you guys are getting paid a lot. If you just send us an email, we'll send you a copy of it. And I got a copy of two research articles because because they've got yes. it in PDF. All you got to do is send them an email. Most that's of the stuff is available. So that's true. for anybody I out there that's interested that. in that, um, I mean, I have access. You can always, I'll, yeah, I still have access to some of the journals. So yeah. Um, okay, so there's there was also a case from 2008, 2009 ish, um, and this was in New York, and the gentleman's name is. Blaze Cote, B-L-A-Z-E-J, and then his last name is K-O-T. So he was a 25-year-old from New Zealand, and he was a postdoc student at Cornell. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Um, And his wife, Caroline Coffey, was a postdoc researcher at the university. So he was a guy that people described as typically pretty aloof and shy with strangers, but at Cornell, he kind of blossomed, ended up forming this relationship with this woman, and they married in 2008, um, but they had a lot of stressors going on. He had he ended up taking a leave of absence from his doctoral program to work for a business startup, and he was working like 60 to 80 hour work weeks. Um, Supposedly, there was mounting financial hardships with the two of them, um, and there was this onset of depression, some paranoia, and eventually what we're going to see is these acute symptoms associated with Capgras delusion. Um, he was, let's see, he, he was working on his PhD in information science, so he was, like I said, he was originally from um, New Zealand. But according to his attorney, he had exhibited schizophrenia-type traits as a teenager, kind of like saying he felt like people were always watching him. Mm. So having um, some paranoia, some negative symptoms, like, because inter- you were mentioning earlier, sort of interpersonal right. challenges, you know. right. That might have come across as being a loner or something. Yeah, but then very much like people are watching me through the electrical outlets type psychosis. Um, So he came to believe that his wife was an imposter. And they went on a hike and a hiking trail in New York near their apartment. And he slashed her throat Mm. on the hike. Um, and then came back to the apartment and tried to destroy evidence, bloody clothing, computer records by setting fire to their apartment. So um, the cops get called, and he leads them on a five-mile high-speed chase. <laughs> so this isn't like our, you know, McCleary person that's like, oh, no, cops, we're just, you know, <laughs> well, waiting the- for the ferry to float out of her. This guy is like, obviously knows he did something wrong. Right, which is different from the kit from Nile. Um, right. the, the previous Singleton. one, the, Singleton, because that delusional belief system was so strong. You know, he like, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. This yeah. this person may may be delusional, but that that probably would not stand up in court as an NGI, right? Correct. Because they had awareness because they were trying to cover it up. Yes, okay. and I, I think that was pretty much the difference. I mean, also this happened in the United States, but. Um, so during the chase, during the police chase, he tried to cut his own throat with a knife, um, and the cops found him in his parked car with 
blood all over him and were able to airlift him and save him and take him to a hospital. But he he was found guilty of murder and got 25 years to life, second-degree murder, um, as well as, like, third-degree arson and tampering with evidence. But um, Dr. Coffey's father, the wife's father, at the trial placed her urn with ashes up on the prosecution table during the trial and during the um, the uh, deliberation of the jury phase and basically told the court that her family thought it would be appropriate for this convicted murderer to see what's left of his wife. Wow. So it was really powerful um, and basically said this is all there is left of her. Um, so, yeah, he, he had a quite a different outcome than Niall Stapleton, um, who actually at some point did come around and say, oh, my gosh, I did kill my mom. It wasn't an imposter. Um, but that was after. I mean, it doesn't matter if, if, if at the time you believe you're no, no, no. Oh, yeah, I wasn't going there. I mean, my, the look on my face was, you know, immediately I'm trying to think in both of those cases then. There might be this point of realization at some, you know. So if there is the chance for a point of realization, was it that their Capgra emergence or presence was organic related to underlying schizophrenia and then aggravated by environmental factors such as drug use? Mm -hmm. You know, because there's drug use in both of these, right? Was there drug use in the the second one? Mm -mm. Oh, there isn't. No. Interesting. Mm -mm. Just a lot of stressors. Okay. I mean, being a PhD student, Working sixty hours, sixty hours a week. Oh well, that's insane. You can't do that. No, I know. You can't do that. <laughs> I mean, that, that something's I mean, got to give. Well, this is that, not, that's awful that I jumped to that place, but like you know, both of us having been doctoral students, and, oh yeah, and I worked. You know, there was a point at which in my last couple of years I worked half time, and it nearly killed me sure. trying to do everything that's sure. required. It's just impossible. Yeah. No. I mean, he, the stress he up, level. He ended up taking a leave from his studies to do that job with that startup, but still, I mean, that's intensely stressful. Well, that's really interesting because I, you know, in going back to the, the, the paper that I was referring to, they looked at what data they had, because this is so rare. It's not like you have a, you know, an, a totally existing pool sure. to do um, double-blind studies or anything on. But they looked at the 104 cases of these various types of misidentification syndrome between 1957 and 1994. So there you go right there. Mm-hmm. Like, look at that span of decades, and you've only got 104 cases that you can look at, where they had enough information on treatment and what was done. And then so they're kind of going backwards. They're looking at it forensically, trying to figure out, like, okay, in this case... What have people tried? And and these aren't even exactly the same um, exhibition of these symptoms, but let's see what's going on. So 70 patients showed improvement when given antipsychotic medication. Mm -hmm. And even then... Well, what kind of antipsychotics were available True. in 1960? <laughs> Thorazine and Haldol, I right. think, were the only ones. But 34... They can't feed themselves, so they're also not... <laughs> exactly, they're not delusional, right? So 70 patients showed improvement, but 34 didn't. And then in 20 patients, um, and another researcher's uh, examination of 20 patients with these syndromes, that um, only seven of them 
had any improvement at all. And that, in those cases, the remission of the symptoms either happened just at the same time as the remission of the underlying psychosis. So right. it's like as the the psychosis or the schizophrenia or the acute, the acute short-term psychotic disorder kind of resolved itself, then it went away. So it kind of yeah. came mysteriously and went mysteriously. So Well, and with antipsychotics, aren't they better at treating the hallucinations rather than the delusions? Oh yeah, so absolutely. Like it, it's like turning down the volume is yeah. the way a lot of clients will say. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, it's like okay, I, you know, at least now the voices are so low yeah, that I can, I can ignore them. them mm-hmm. You know, and like, and I wouldn't say that. I would never say that visual hallucinations are atypical. I know that some psychologists will degree that uh, disagree with me and say they're atypical. I don't believe that they are. I think because we we don't look for visual hallucinations in schizophrenia as much as we should because sure. all we go because oh, generally the way you're asking it is are you seeing anything that anybody else is not seeing? Well, how the hell am I going to know? Right. Like I could be you know I could be surrounded by people and think really everybody sees them. That's right. A really good point. That's yeah. a very different experience than auditory hallucinations. Sure. So, sure. yeah, I think the, the medication will help. Like, what I, in response to what you're saying is that if there's a comorbid um, existence or presence of anxiety mm-hmm. and the anxiety is fueling paranoia and the paranoia then continues to fuel the delusion, then maybe some medication that addresses those issues could release it to where, like, well, it may not be my wife, but I'm not so worried about it. Like, yeah. you know, I guess I'll just have to deal with it. Right. Because that's one of the main takeaways from this study that really surprised me is all of these researchers think that it's really underreported, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Like the idea, because something that sure. we barely know anything about, and there may be just a lot more people that's really having this experience. Because how, uh, <laughs> I don't know, either I could see one end of the extreme or the other, either like, I can't say that. People are going to think I'm crazy and right. you don't. Or who the fuck is this person? Of course I don't want to be sleeping next to you. Right. Uh, I don't know. That's I mean, really interesting to think I, about. I draw a parallel between people that come to my private practice for anxiety disorders because mm-hmm. it's one of the things that I feel like I have a certain level of expertise in. And as I teach it, as I you know sort of teach them skills and give them insight and we develop sort of this we kind of work together on a collaborative process for addressing their issues is one of the things that comes up more so than people talking about depression is people are always especially men never want to admit that they have anxiety and they never want to admit how crippling or challenging it is because it's like that scene where Russell Crowe in a beautiful mind is saying, well, I should be able to fix this. I'm the smartest guy in the world. I should be able to figure this out. And I think that's the way we look at things that we think, well, it's just nervousness. It's just anxiety when it's actually not, it's a huge deal. Sure. So if people are unwilling to admit how anxiety plays a role in their life. Can you imagine if you had something huge, right. like a delusional belief that like, well, shit, I think my whole family's been replaced. You know, what right. do I, what do you do with that? You don't tell anyone or you tell everyone. It's right. Be because one of those I guess extremes. it just, that's geez. That's a sitcom right there. Alrighty. <laughs> Our first uh, case and episode of 2020 in the books. So it's a little bit shorter this time, but that's okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah, we're going doing good. I wanted to thank everybody. Uh, One of the things that I'm noticing over the last month, we have had more listeners 
write to us with show suggestions yes. and questions. Thank you so much. Um, I such wanted, good stuff. Yes, yeah, such great stuff. Um, Angie Thompson wrote in just recently. I want to let you, and she wants to, uh, is very interested in Munchausen by proxy. Everybody's asking us. Everybody's <laughs> asking us to do it. The only reason we haven't done it is we've got to figure out a way that doesn't just rehash all of right. the issues with... Um, Gypsy Rose. Rose. You know, we just don't want to kind of rehash that. We want to find a a different way about it. So that's definitely Mm -hmm. on the books, I promise you. And that's also been, it was kind of a contender for the case we were going to cover at True Crime Podcast Festival last year. So I think we still kind of have it in our back pocket for this year with getting off. Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm hoping that's what's going to be. To yeah. it. So maybe we'll save it for something big like that. Yes. And we've got plenty of other ones uh, that have written in. I'm just very exciting. I'm sorry. I'm very excited about having another listener question, but uh, uh, episode, but I don't want to do one every other week because no. then we just get, no, you know, we're doing nothing. But, but we'll get questions. around to it. We'll, we save yeah. all of them and we'll, we'll definitely, we love the suggestions. So you might even hear a suggestion here or there, but we get great questions from you guys and we, we try to answer them right away if we're not saving it for, you know, an episode that we see coming up. Um, but other than that, we will be probably popping on to some other podcasts, doing some guest spots. So we will let you know where to listen to those um, in the coming months. And um, I don't know, just tons of stuff planned for the next few months. Should we brag about what we did in December? Yeah. Well, I think we talked about prepping for it. So. We talked about prepping for it. It went off really well. Yeah. So, so look, you guys, I mean, as much as we've been, I mean, we're 36 episodes in and we're having a blast doing this and we get great feedback and we love critique so that we can become better at this. We realized that this was the first time that we were actually doing a professional non-entertainment based presentation for a group of law enforcement and right. related individuals. And it was for, and like we said, it was the first time we ever presented together right? professionally. And it was so much fun. I was so blast. nervous beforehand. I was like, I got to pee. I got to get up. I got to walk around. I got to, well, no, as, as long as I've known you, I, I mean, you're an enigma then because I had no idea <laughs> oh, that God. you were that nervous. Yeah. I had no idea. But it went really well. We got um, such good, lovely feedback. Great feedback. We presented on the on the incel phenomenon. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. Um, Shiloh and I, because we continue to delve into this phenomenon with our wonderful colleague, Nama Cates, right. and some other researchers, we have a take on things that is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and in important um, discernment between lumping everybody in as a potentially violent person when that's just not what this phenomenon is about at all. And if we, if everybody looks at it as a threat, then we're not going to be getting help to the people that really may want some help and, and, and to see a doorway out of that belief system and that lifestyle. Well, and I feel like as I have told people sort of about our presentation, you know, other people that we work with that they're like, what's that? And I feel like there's, there's sort of this PSA component, especially people with children. And as much as people live online lives and teenagers and kids, it feels like this warning tale of just pay attention to what your kiddos are doing out there. And, um, yeah, I've had that conversation a number of times where they're like, what is that? And 
if more parents ask that, yeah, you know, just being really aware. There was a great article that's sort of related to that um, that was on Huffington Post that a, a mom wrote about. I think the title is "I almost or I lost my son to the alt right, but I got him back." Oh wow! And it was about written by a very very talented writer explaining that her son who was 13 or 14 years old was going through an extremely awkward time extremely awkward troubles at school good student but problems with socialization but a very smart kid and he really got sucked into a an alt-right ultra right-wing white nationalist Mm -hmm. ideology and really got sucked into it almost not he wasn't there was never any evidence that he was radicalized but he was really you know coming to the dinner table going well what about this and what about this and what about this Mm -hmm. and as a mom an intellectual mom she wanted to allow her child that space for him to develop intellectually and she had but she had real questions when he wanted to go to a rally And this was before the Charleston rally. Uh Um, But, you know, she felt like she had to honor it. And in a way, it turned out being one of the best things possible because the kid got there and he realized he had nothing in common with these people at all. That there was like a real a real difference between the actual presentation of it and their disingenuous. Exactly. And their their disingenuousness about about what they were presenting online. So huh. that was, it was a, a good version of it, but sure. ultimately it turns back to what you're talking about. It's just Terrifying. having char- parents be aware that kids are sponges yep. and especially They're in the, the vast to. world of the manosphere. And we talk about the manosphere being mm-hmm. this sort of big global online entity where the incel community is only one part of it. You know, you have to be really careful about how that indoctrinates children into think uh, thinking in terms of people not all being equal and right. that's pretty dangerous thought yeah definitely so we did really well so thank you all (laughs) thanks all to all of our listeners for allowing us this level of success for us to feel confident enough to go in front of basically an international organization and do a presentation that not only made us look good but made the people that we work for look really good it was a great experience and everybody who's listening today is a part of that we really appreciate it i agree all right we will see you next time on la not so confidential bye folks happy new year Happy New Year.